This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Welcome to Coffee House Shots, a Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by James Forsyth and Isabel Hardman. Today, MPs will gather in Parliament to pay tribute to Sir David Amos. This comes after several developments over the weekend in terms of how the government is responding to this. James, can you fill us in on what we know about the suspect and what the government's reaction to it is? Uh, well, the suspect is being held under anti-terrorism powers, which means the police have, uh, I think, until uh, this Friday to decide whether or not to, to charge him or not. He is a British national of Somali heritage. There are reports in the papers today that he had previously been referred to the PREVENT programme. We know that after the incident took place, he didn't attempt to leave. And I think we'll probably learn more in the coming days about the background to this. I think the other relevant fact is that he lives in uh, North London, so he does not live in South West, West David Amos's constituency. And there have been some reports over the weekend that, that he might have grown up in South End, but, it, but now it appears that he grew up in Croydon. So the, the link to South End West is less clear than I think people thought it was on Friday. And Isabel is being treated as a terrorist incident. So when it comes to, I suppose, what the government's talking about, we heard from Priti Patel, the Home Secretary at the weekend, and there are now plenty of questions about prevent and also social media. Can you talk us through those? Yes, so there's a debate about whether Prevent sort of discharged him as somebody uh, of interest inappropriately, whether he'd managed to pull the wool over the eyes of the authorities and convince them that he'd somehow moderated his views that had led him to being referred in the first place. There's a debate about online abuse. Priti Patel suggested over the weekend that she might be minded to try to end uh, anonymity on social media, which... A number of MPs and former MPs have responded saying, well, have you not been on Facebook? Because people don't have anonymity on Facebook, but go on to groups and using their, you know, their names, their profiles, which are often linked to their employment, write all kinds of hideous abuse uh, about MPs and sort of whip one another up into a frenzy. So there's a debate about whether anonymity is, is really the issue here or not. There's also a debate about whether... MPs should have police stationed outside their constituency surgeries uh, about whether there are other security measures that backbenchers can have that they either decided not to have previously or that they've been refused previously. And this is very uncomfortable because after the murder of Joe Cox, IPSA, which uh, funds the security arrangements for MPs' homes and so on, installed greater security at most MPs' properties, depending on the sort of threats that they were facing. But everyone got a kind of a basic and an enhanced level of security. And the threat has never really been against them in their homes. It's been in the most sort of visible place for them, which is at their constituency surgeries. And so now there's a very uncomfortable debate about whether MPs think now is the time to slightly removed themselves from their constituents. You've had Tobias Elwood suggesting that uh, they might want to cancel all their face-to-face surgeries and hold this over Zoom, which I think is a sort of extreme 
view that's not shared by that many colleagues. But Diane Abbott, uh, who receives a huge amount of online abuse and threats, uh, said over the weekend that she might prefer to hold her constituency surgeries from behind a screen. And so that this is something that you know, MPs are very uncomfortable with because they want to give the impression to their constituents that they really trust them. But it is also the case that this is the, the second killing in just over five years uh, in the past decade uh, and a bit we had the attack on Stephen Timms. All MPs, as we've discussed on previous podcasts, received death threats and harassment. And even though it seems that this may be a case of a, a an Islamist terror attack on a politician who is, you know, politicians are high value targets in in all countries. It has reignited the wider debate about attacks on our democracy and attempts to silence politicians. And this spins off in all sorts of directions that go far beyond Islamist terrorism. Every single policy response has a trade-off, right? So if you increase security for MPs at their surgeries, you will undoubtedly deter some people who need assistance but have had run-ins with the state, maybe have had run-ins from the police from turning up. You will you will make MPs less responsive to their constituents in that way. If you remove anonymity online, you might well remove some of the abuse online, which would obviously be a good thing, but you would also make it more difficult for someone who wished to whistleblow about malpractice in a public service to, to find a way of doing that. And I think this is where this debate gets so hard, is that there are no easy or satisfying answers to any of these questions you know we, we could give mps far more security that going to an mp surgery could be like turning up to the house of commons where you have to pass through airport style security before before you have contact with any mp if you did that for mp surgeries that would obviously make mps safer but it would obviously have a knock-on effect on who came to those surgeries and so i think this is this is what is so difficult that we have to grapple with now is that whatever course of action is done that there that something will be lost and i mean this is this is what makes the situation so very very difficult and as well as part of the issue here that even if you do go for one of the things that pretty patel suggested so security for those who are particularly you know facing threats that security is just going to be in the surgery and there's plenty of you know opportunities if, if you want to cause harm to someone which go beyond that. Absolutely I mean particularly in their constituencies MPs are vulnerable and they're recognisable you know when they're out shopping they can't have a, a police escort just to go to Tesco to buy some gin or something like that you know it's just it's just not going to be practical and it's not what most MPs would want or would be appropriate. And so, to a certain extent, there, there is a level of risk that comes with this job that will put people off politics and that sort of rises and falls depending on uh, the different threats and the different climates. I mean, David Amos had talked about how he had received threats from the IRA. Now, that's obviously not, you know, not a live issue in the way it was in, in the 80s and 90s. But I think the sheer volume of online threat is something which has been really upsetting MPs recently as well and I think they are very keen to to reignite that debate now because they feel that it, it is you know nothing has changed really since Joe Cox's death and I think a lot of MPs who knew Joe have been very upset that we are once again you know returning to the commons for an afternoon of tributes to a murdered MP just five years after we talked a lot about having more in common than that which divides us and and that's a very upsetting reality for for parliamentarians to have to confront this afternoon 
Now, in other news, there are warnings once again about the COVID situation in the UK. James, it feels as though this definitely dropped uh, in terms of the news agenda in recent months. Even at Tory conference, it felt as though it perhaps wasn't even the top five concerns of this government. But the UK has recorded um, 45,140 new cases, and that is the UK's highest daily jump since July. Um, there's also some unfavourable comparisons in terms of where the UK is with European neighbours. Do you think we're heading to a period where the government might have to move towards that plan B? I think there will be more demands for that. I think at the moment, one of the particular problems is this this large testing lab that was essentially telling people that they were fine, even if they tested positive on lateral flow, they should go back out into society. I think that that is hard to believe that that hasn't boosted the infection rate. I think in terms of hospitalizations, we're still at a kind of relatively stable level because a lot of these COVID cases are concentrated in, in the younger age groups. I think I think at the end of last week, the Spectator Data Hub was saying that the average age of someone with COVID is now down to 22. Uh, I think one of the concerns, though, is that the, this booster programme to try and get a third shot to the elderly who are obviously more at risk of being hospitalised if they catch the disease, that seems to be going fairly slowly. There is obviously, I think, a kind of fall off and take up. I think that there are also some concerns about how that scheme has has been designed in terms of whether it is getting enough people. And then I think also there is another argument that that the UK is saying you only get this third shot six months after you had your second shot. There are some people who think that the the signs are that this waning immunity kicks in at five months rather than six months. Obviously, it's it's not kind of one day you've got perfect immunity, the next day it it lowers drastically. But, you know, there there is that issue. And so I think where we are is in a situation where... If you had a bad flu season, and it, for reasons we've discussed in this podcast before, it's unlikely the flu vaccine this year is going to be particularly effective, then the situation could get troublesome. But I think the government, on, on in terms of the overall cases and deaths, I thought it was a very interesting but kind of slightly underreported bit of David Frost's speech in Lisbon, when he basically talked about the UK's decision to be much more open much less restrictive than other countries in Europe, was a kind of deliberate policy choice. And I think that is something that Boris Johnson feels as well. And I think they will be very loath to kind of head back towards more restrictive measures if they can help it. I mean, there's also just an interesting note from James Burns Murdoch, the FT data journalist, comparing the English and Scottish COVID cases, which basically suggests that, that you know, and this, this is where things get hard, but it's the level of indoor mixing not mask wearing that is the determinant of the number of cases. So these, these simpler interventions, you know, lower cost interventions like, oh, please just wear a mask, they might help at the margin. But if you think that the overall case rate is just far too high, mask wearing alone is not going to be the answer to that problem. And Isabel, just finally, you're currently working on a book on the NHS. Are you picking up concerns in terms of hospital pressure heading up to winter? Hugely, yes. A&E weights are up to a record high so I think it's around 5,000 people were having trolley waits as they're known um, for 12 hours which is an extraordinary time to be waiting for a proper bed and treatment and the um, paramedics have also been warning about the amount of time they're having to spend just queuing in ambulances outside A&E so unable to go and tend to other patients who still need help elsewhere and unable to discharge the uh, the sick people they've brought to hospital and uh, this is you know only in October so 
things are likely to get much harder over the winter. It's not just, you know, the, the rise in respiratory illnesses, but it's also the fact that people who started to show symptoms of illnesses during the pandemic have actually got much sicker uh, before seeking medical treatment. So there's that knock on effect of that as well. Thank you, Isabel. Thank you, James. And thank you for listening.